In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Well, that's because today is the first Friday of the month, which makes it free text first Friday. As you know, on the first Fridays, we step away from our regular text and we treat a special topic. Today, we explore the true meaning of forgiveness and humility and the immense love that Jesus has for every lost sinner, while contemplating on what it means for us to deal with conflict within our congregations. This study of Matthew 18 will reveal how we should live as members of the kingdom of heaven, humbly, forgivingly, and always striving for reconciliation and unity in the face of tension and sin. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Friday, July 7th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is made possible in part by a generous gift from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates, publishes, and distributes Lutheran books and materials that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. I want you to learn more about LHF and how you can partner with them in this vital mission work, and to do so, you should go online to lhfmissions.org. There's an S on the end, lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, please join me in welcoming my guest to help us explore Matthew 18 and what the Bible teaches about Christian reconciliation. It's the Reverend David Benning, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Nashville, Illinois. Good morning, Pastor Benning, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you very much. Good morning. Well, it's great to have you on. Um, this is your first time on the program, and as is customary, I like to let the audience get to know you just a little bit better. I know you a little bit from seminary, but uh, just tell the folks at home a little bit about yourself, how God is working through you and the saints there at Trinity Lutheran, and anything else you think you might want to share. Well, thank you again for the opportunity to come on this show, and uh, there's our ministry here in Nashville started in 2021. Uh, it's, so it's a relatively new call for our family here serving the saints in Nashville, Illinois. So don't get as confused with Nashville, Tennessee. Um, <laughs> when I told my cousin I was taking a call to Nashville, he goes, oh, that's Nashville, Tennessee. That's great. And I go, oh, it's Nashville, Illinois. He goes, oh. And Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard been, of Nashville, Illinois. Yeah, it's, it's just an hour outside of uh, St. Louis, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, just east on uh, Interstate 64. And uh, it has been a wonderful opportunity to serve the people in this community. Um, they have demonstrated their love for each other, especially this past week. We had a, uh, a storm come through with about 90 mile an hour winds, and it just knocked all the trees out. Um, and the, we have a alert team, a Lutheran early response team that will be staying here at our church for the next week or so. And our congregation has just really stepped up to the plate to invite them into our church and to help us serve the needs of our community. Oh, that's awesome. So, um, tell the folks a little bit about yourself, married kids. Uh, I am married to my lovely wife, uh, Rachel. Uh, we have three kids. Olivia, uh, Truman, and Virgil, and uh, they are just an amazing three kids, let me tell you. Wonderful. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Well, um, today our subject is going to be Matthew 18. Before we get into any of that, though, uh, we like to start off with prayer at the top of the show, and I invite our guests to lead us in that prayer. So that's all on you, brother, if you would lead us in a prayer before we begin. Thank you. Please pray with me. Dear Jesus, what you have to share with us in Matthew 18 is so important for the church, especially when we are dealing with conflict with our brothers. And when we do so, remind us that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, there you are amongst them, even as they are dealing with conflict. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So on these first texts, or free text First Fridays, I, it's so hard to say, but I, I even named it. But the uh, free text First Fridays, we uh, decide to do all kinds of different things. It doesn't have to be uh, just a Bible passage. It can be a, a topic in the news, uh, just really anything that gets us off track for just a day. And you actually chose this topic, Matthew 18. Uh, tell us a little bit about why you are passionate about talking about this particular subject. Well, we have been currently going through our church constitution here at Trinity, and one thing that's always um, intrigued me about our church's church constitution is, is that it always refers to Matthew 18, but I think when it says that, people are only thinking about you know those few verses that we famously think about when it's Matthew 18, and that's verses uh, 15 through 19, and they really don't understand that it's it's talking about the whole chapter. And I feel that there's a, a need for us as a church to understand that when we deal with each other in brotherly love, we're talking about the whole chapter of Matthew 18, not just one section of it. Well, that's interesting. Um, you know, just for my own my own interest level, I, I pulled up the Constitution here for the congregation I serve, and I, I did a quick search for Matthew 18. And yeah, you know, Matthew 18 shows up just as you might expect. In fact, it shows up twice uh, in ours, once in the preamble and once referencing discipline in the congregation. Uh, and, and ours says, all discipline in this congregation shall be administered in accordance with the order of discipline laid down in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. And those are those passages that you say are very familiar, 15 through 20 you know, if uh, your brother sins against you, go to him between you and him alone and that sort of thing. So that's the one that I guess everybody thinks about. But you're saying, you know what? Understanding it in context is probably the best way to go. And I certainly can't disagree with you there. Yeah, at, as the church lives together, we just we need to utilize the whole chapter and referring to one section. We miss the fact that Jesus wants us to know where we stand in the kingdom as a sinner before we go seeking to offer that same forgiveness to others, especially the one who has sinned against us. I think anytime you take the the scriptures and you divorce certain verses from the greater context, it just opens up the opportunity for misunderstanding and misapplication. I mean, how many people really do misunderstand those sections, uh, even those select verses, because They've been divorced from their from their context. I tell yeah. you what, why don't we actually read a little bit, um, just starting off? We'll just read the first four verses. Um, okay. Let's see here. Actually, we'll receive the we'll read the first five verses. I take it back. The first six. Here we go. 
At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put in the midst of them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. There we go, verses 1 through 6. So the disciples are coming to Jesus, and I guess they just don't get it, do they, brother? They're still wanting to know, you know, Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel right now? Jesus, are you going to get rid of these Romans? Jesus, when we get to heaven, which one of us is going to be the greatest? Surely it's going to be one of us. And Jesus surprises them by calling to him a child. Take us through what's going on the ground here, brother. You know, what is there to learn? Well, Jesus brings before them a child because children really didn't have any standing at the time of Jesus. They didn't hold a place of importance. Uh, they were not respected as someone you would seek. And by placing a child in them, Jesus is placing the least before them, showing us that the most important in the kingdom of heaven are the least. That's a, a far that's a far cry different than the way the world thinks of things and and even the way I think that we think of things we even in our interactions with other people we typically think of children as ones who need to be protected and that's true and ones who uh, really don't have much to contribute to society especially if you have children right you think about oh man these guys they're always you know they eat all my food and they're spending all my money but he brings this child, and, and the word here would have been for a really little child, uh, earlier than puberty for sure. And, and he says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that look like for us to turn and become like children? Um, it, does it have to do with dependence, right? We think of children as being dependent upon their parents. Is, is Jesus calling us to a dependence upon him, I guess? Yeah, and I would say that the dependence we have on him uh, for everything, especially in this context, uh, for forgiveness, and that humility that he's talking about as we, you know, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What does that humility look like? And it always makes me think of our our preschool teacher here at um uh, Trinity St. John's Lutheran School that our church is affiliated with, how she teaches forgiveness to children. And that, you know, you have to say, okay, Tommy, what do you need to say? And Tommy says, I'm sorry. And it's like, Billy, what do you need to now say? And say, Tommy says, well, I forgive you. Just going through that routine, I think that's the humility we have to bring to forgiveness is that simplex simplicity, the I am sorry and I forgive you. And, that, is, that is crucially important. When I had, um, uh, when I was teaching preschoolers, actually at my previous congregation, it hasn't come up as much in this current congregation, but the same thing, you know, we, we don't have 
the apologies without the bestowal of forgiveness because it it teaches you on both sides that you know if someone sins against you you can you can play the victim or uh, upon their confession you can you know re- forgive them their sins you can absolve them in the name of Christ and that's that's empowering for both people and so being humble being humble like a child Jesus isn't certainly wanting us to go off and I guess, act like children, even though we often do. He's describing this change in attitude from one of, of pride, seeking to be the greatest, to one of humility, dependence upon Jesus, one who looks to the Father for guidance, one who isn't trying to carve out his own way, but is uh, submissive to to the Lord. And, and then that leads to, paradoxically, uh, greatness, right? Whoever humbles himself is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But everybody can't be great on the same level, right? So what's what's what is Jesus telling us here that we're all that we're all the same before God? Surely. Surely we are all the same before God in that we are all uh sinners in need of forgiveness. We all need our savior Jesus. Um no one can um escape that our need for him and his forgiveness. And you know, I have they, a note here. Oh, I was just going to jump in there and say, I have a note here that says that Jesus's teachings here contrast the conventional wisdom of the day because member of the Greco-Roman society associated meekness and humility with weakness. I don't think mm-hmm. that's something that's limited to their society today. Uh, we see meekness, we see humility in the Christian context as virtues. Jesus is Mm -hmm. elevating these traits to virtues, but I think it's very, hmm, aside from being faithful, it can be very courageous to step out and say, you know, I need forgiveness. I've sinned against you. I've done something wrong. To acknowledge that in and of itself is is humility. Yeah, and I would say the forgiveness process, the just the simple, I am sorry and I forgive you, we tend to think that the humility part is on the, I am sorry, but actually the humility also comes from, and the weakness from, I forgive you. I, I think in our society, we, when we're not in a habit of saying, I forgive you as much as we are, because we think it places us in a position of weakness. Like someone's getting away with something if we forgive it. And what we're really doing as Christians, when we don't use those words, I forgive you. And instead we say something else like, oh, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Uh, and the like, we actually are denying being Christ to that. As Luther says, being little Christs. And I think we are, we are little Christ to each other in no more an important way of than saying those three words, I forgive you. And that really shows humility on both parts both sides. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense because our natural inclination, I believe anyway, is to get justice, to get even. And when we have to humble ourselves to forgive, that is to forgive the debt, to forgive the offense, to completely forget about it, to not seek after retribution, to not be even made whole in some cases, right? Let's say someone steals from you and they can't make you whole and there's forgiveness there regardless. All of that does put you in a in a vulnerable position, but it puts you in a position of of uh, 
of also understanding your own relationship with God. And I think that's the context here, right? Jesus is wanting mm-hmm. us to understand that we cannot have uh, grudges over one another. We cannot be uh, uncharitable to one another because of how great uh, God has been to us, how charitable and merciful he has been to us. Um, so yeah. then he talked, oh, go ahead, but th- but but then lead us into the next part about this uh, hanging millstones around his neck. That seems a little hyperbolic, doesn't it? Yeah. The, what we're dealing with here is, uh, so Jesus places this child in front of them and in doing so we become that child. You know, we, Jesus is seeking us to be the least in his kingdom to, to be the servant to all. And, um, as we do that, we can also, when Jesus mentions a child in verse five, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, we can also assume that role as well as child. We can put ourselves in that position as well. But I also think it has a meaning, has a double meaning here. One, that we need to be cautious of leading our brother to sin and especially cautious with little ones age-wise um, because, you know, if, if you have kids that you know that they're just sponges soaking up everything and we need to be careful of what we say in front of them as well as leading other children of God, which whatever age they may be, into temptation or to sin. And Jesus wants us to be aware that he does not want us leading anyone to sin. You know, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Uh, that, of course, harkens back to Jesus's words we heard uh, last Sunday, right? Last week, uh, earlier in this same chapter, in Matthew chapter 10, uh, verse 40, Jesus says, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. That was our gospel reading on the three-year series for last Sunday. And here we are today talking about 18, and we hear some similar language, right? Whoever receives one such child receives me. Um, mm-hmm. Whoever causes, though, on the opposite, one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and then we have this great uh, hyperbolic, but it illustrates the seriousness of sin. Jesus says it would be like better for him to have a great millstone around his neck to be drowned in the deepest parts of the sea. He, Jesus is expressing grief over the things that cause people to sin. I Go ahead. He is expressing grief, and then it's also uh, setting us up for taking us in then to those next uh, verses that deal with the temptations to sin. You know, Jesus sets the stage with this great visual, this hyper hyperbolic language of this great millstone, and then he takes us into temptation. Let's hear it. So verses 7 through 9, Jesus continues, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So, again, more hyperbole, I believe. Jesus isn't actually calling us to sever our bodily appendages, but the need for us to separate ourselves from sin is just as severe and sometimes can be just as painful, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and we've used that word several times, that hyperbole hyperbole and hyperbolic language, and that's why I always take the, the kids to that note in the Lutheran Study Bible, uh, 2 verse 18, verse 8 and 9, and show them that he used such strong and hyperbolic language to emphasize the seriousness of sin. He's making this exaggeration to show how detrimental sin is to our life. Luther once said that you can't, well, actually, he's just quoting a, an old ancient saying also, but he says, you can't prevent the birds from flying over your head, but you can certainly keep them from building a nest in your hair. Mm -hmm. You know, woe to the world for temptations to sin. It's necessary that they come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Um, tell us a little bit about that. So why is it necessary? Why is Jesus telling us that it's necessary for us to be tempted? Is it necessary merely because there are temptations and temptations are just going to happen? Or is it necessary for us to be strengthened as Christians to be tempted? Of course, God tempts no one. Uh, so how do, we, how do we understand Jesus' words here that it's necessary that temptations come, but of course, woe to the one who actually does the tempting? Well, for that, I would take us to the words of the Lord's Prayer and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And as we learn about that in confirmation class, we see that the we are the God is not the one who is tempting us, but that it, it's those three, the devil, the world, and ourselves that tempt us to sin. And in that temptation, we see the sin in our life which I see that temptation, we, in the temptation, we see the sin in our life and how much more the forgiveness of Christ is needed. Whereas it made me think of the upcoming uh, gospel, uh, not gospel, the epistle lesson for this Sunday, where Paul reminds us, you know, the, the good I want to do, I don't do. And the bad I don't want to do, I keep on doing. You know, this, that constant need uh, for forgiveness. And it's, Paul also says, you know, we don't want, you're not going to keep on sinning so that grace can abound, but that it is, uh, that sin is something that we should resist. We should resist these temptations, even though we may fail at them. So it sounds like part of the thing that Jesus is saying is that, you know, temptations are just a part of life, a life in a fallen and broken world. So he says, woe, right? Woe to the world. Woe to the one who tempts, but just understand that temptations are a part of life. And so there is some onus upon us, it seems, to separate ourselves from the temptation. So we, we, we hear the scriptures talk about us being in the world, but not of the world, and that's crucially important. We can't proclaim to people who are sinners if we don't ever 
find ourselves in the company of sinners. But we don't want to associate with sinners in such a way that it draws us to sin. And so instead of us just sort of saying, well, you know, we're being tempted, it, it appears to me anyway that Jesus is saying that we have some work to do. You know, if your hand or your foot is causing you to sin, if something as close to you as a bodily appendage is causing you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It would be painful, I think, to cut off your hand or your mm-hmm. foot. Uh, but it would also be just as painful, or not, I shouldn't say just as, but it can be painful to cut out of your life perhaps people who continually draw you into sin, to cut out even family members who continually draw you into sin, to not go to the places that you want to go because they draw you and tempt you into sin. And and so that's what I hear Jesus saying, is that no matter how painful the separation might be for you, like severing off a foot or a hand, Mm -hmm. it's worth it. It's worth it for you to to be saved from uh, the eternal fire. And I think the language here that Jesus uses is especially meaningful to someone who is, you know, cutting someone out of your life is painful, but it, there is a process for, for doing that. You can, just by having physical separation, get away from that person. But as we're reminded, we're also tempted by ourselves. Cutting out, you know, say, an addiction out of our life is even all that much more painful and not something we can just get physical distance from. And these words, I think, speak to addiction as well, because they are so close to us, like a hand or a foot, that we can't, uh, cutting it out of our life is going to be painful and difficult to do. But, you know, knowing that... Well, I was just going to say the, I was just going to say, you know, this idea of addiction, right? You know, people often say, well, you know, addiction is a disease, and and it is. In many ways, um, there's there's physiological, chemical processes that are causing you to be addicted to a substance. Um, but separation from that does cause physical pain. But if you're trying to get clean from whatever it is, you're not the type that's going to surround yourself, or at least you shouldn't be, with temptations to do those things. Mm-hmm. So let's say it's alcohol or drugs, or or whatever is causing you to be tempted, but you're not going to hang out with people who are doing those things. You're not going to expose yourself unnecessarily to those things. And it can be painful, but it is certainly worth it. And so I think that uh, idea of addiction is a really good analogy to our struggle with sin in general. Yeah, and temptation... By Jesus bringing temptation before us, he puts us all on the same level playing field. Because the other side of the coin is, you know, there's always, we always feel like there are people who are the tempted and the not tempted. The the addicts and uh, the not addicts. And really, Jesus puts us all into the same bunch here. We are all, if you're human, you're tempted. And is something that you're going to have to resist against. No one is not being tempted. Even even Christ was tempted, but he persevered over that, where we may be tempted and not persevere over that temptation because of sin. 
Well, certainly something for us to think about. We're all tempted. Even Jesus was tempted. What we do with that temptation, with the power of the Holy Spirit, certainly matters a lot. We're going to consider those things as we take just a few minutes for a break. Folks, don't go anywhere. Pastor Benning and I will keep on going when we return. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend David Benning, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Nashville, Illinois. Folks, you can catch Thy Strong Word on the radio in St. Louis on AM850, but remember, if that signal doesn't quite reach you or doesn't quite reach the person that you're wanting to share the program with, you can always subscribe yourself or have them subscribe to Thy Strong Word on their favorite podcasting app. You can also download the KFEO Radio mobile app, which is available on iOS and Android. Extremely easy to use. Works great. And you can also listen live or on demand at KFUO.org. And if you want to share your thoughts or your questions about today's program or anything you've heard on this program, you can uh, email me. Keep in touch, right? PastorBoo at gmail.com is the way to reach me. You can also find me on Facebook. Uh, just search for Phil Boo over there, and I, I think I'm one of three. So I'll, I'll be the one you'll recognize me. So let's, uh, let's stay in touch, folks. Well, Pastor Benning, before the break, we were just, you know, just getting to the end of this, this comments about from Jesus about how we should separate ourselves from sin, even if it were painful for us. In these next verses, he continues to talk about little ones, starting with verse ten. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. All right, that's uh, what we commonly call the parable of the lost sheep. Uh, by the way, when I first became a Lutheran, or I should say I first visited the Lutheran church, now I hadn't even become a Lutheran yet. When I first visited the Lutheran church, this was the text for the very first Lutheran sermon I ever heard, preached by the Reverend John Green down in Clyde, North Carolina, way back in 2000 and five, I think. But anyway, I, I distinctly remember this being the text. Um, 
I, I remember how he interpreted it. I remember how I interpret it. How do you interpret this, brother? What's this have to do with Christian reconciliation? You know, one of the first things that I think of when I hear the parable of the lost sheep is as a child, all of the pictures, stained glass windows that you would see of Jesus holding that sheep around his shoulders and uh, yes, carrying it's always that the sheep. proverbial, you know, one sheep that he's found. Uh, you know, I it, it's it's a fascinating kind of idea because it goes against human intuition. You know, why would you want to risk uh, leaving behind ninety nine to just go find one one who presumably is pretty stubborn and and maybe weak or even hurt, and that's why he's out there. Wouldn't it be better for the ninety nine to ignore the one? Jesus once again is turning things on its head. So, in combination with all of those visuals that we have in our churches. And then when this text comes up in the pericopes and put those two together, it's probably one of Jesus's most recognizable parables because of that visual that we have in our churches. And, and we have all heard, like you said, you, you remember the sermon. Um, one of the first sermons you heard was this passage. And so we've all heard a sermon on this on how um, that, that sermon that shows us that we are not, one of the 99, but that we are actually the lost sheep that Jesus is going out and looking for to bring back into the fold, to bring us forgiveness, to go out and find us and bring us forgiveness. And one thing we may not be aware of when we hear it is that as recognizable as this parable is, we don't think of it being with Matthew 18 and all of the other things that Matthew 18 is dealing with and forgiveness and temptation and so forth. Um, when you put it into its context with forgiveness and temptation, uh, we get just comfort that seeing Jesus going out into the world to find us who is in need of forgiveness because we're a sinner and who who is tempted, and he's going out and looking for us and leaving the 99. As is no. almost as if Jesus is reminding us how much he loves us and what he's willing to do to bring us forgiveness. Now, I know this isn't the focus of our study today because we want to look at Matthew 18 in context as it applies to Christian reconciliation. But every time this comes up, I, I, when, whenever I'm teaching it to my own people— uh, the for the the question of angels comes up, and I want to hear your take on it. Uh, he says, "For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven." So, is it explained away as guardian angels? Are these angels which just always do the work of the Father? Uh, does everybody have an angel? Do you have an angel until you get a certain age? There's all kinds of mythologies that have rose up around this pretty much this singular text, maybe the one in Luke too, but about, about angels and guardian angels, what would you tell people if they asked you about this? I would tell them the same thing that I tell my, uh, my children about angels and guardian angels, that God works through whatever means possible that he has to take care of us. And if he chooses to use angels, which we do know that exist and are well documented in God's word, then that's what he's going to use. 
So whether or not you have a guardian angel is up to God. If that is how he chooses to protect you, that is his will. But oh, there's no good. There's no way yeah, that, that sounds you can like a good answer as any, I tell you. Well, why don't we keep on going? Because now we're to the crux of it. This is the section that everybody remembers, verses 15 through 20. So if, if we you're... look... Oh, go ahead. If we look at the whole chapter as it's flowing now, okay? So we've, we're coming up to the part that everyone knows. And if we are being aware of what has preceded it, you know, Jesus starts off with how important it is to forgive and to be like a child. He talks about, he, he puts us all on the same playing field. We're, we're all tempted. No one is above temptation. And then he puts it at the bottom. And you know what? And I go out and I find you because I love you so much. I go out looking to forgive your sins. And now... It's almost he, he, he has set the table to be able to, to feed us. Now, what, how he wants us to interact with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ with let's these verses. It. Yeah, let's hear it. So verses 15 and, well, through 20. Jesus continues, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him, to be, uh, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. All right, brother, starting at the top. Again, it seems familiar because we've heard this before, but if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Um, a lot of people see that as the first step in this method, uh, whether we look at it as steps or, or, or however we look at it. This is this is the first approach is to go and deal with your brother privately. Uh, but why? Well, let's start off with how the world wants us to handle this. The world wants us to uh, if someone sins against you, the world expects for you to, you know, sit in this place of power and have that person come groveling at your feet. And then in addition to that, the world expects us to put whatever we can about the situation on the social media and let everybody know about it. And Jesus says the exact opposite. He says, if your brother sins against you, you go, go. You're the one who's got to go and restore your brother. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. No social media no uh, gossip, no nothing. It is between you and him alone. That is why when I take seventh and eighth graders through this, I have them, and I would encourage your listeners to do this as well if they have their Bibles open, and that is circle go, circle tell, and underline alone. So you get the phrase, go tell alone. And that's an easy first step for 
uh, any of us to remember of what we're supposed to do when our brother sins against us. What? But go tell alone. Go tell alone. Yeah, and and, I, that, and that if we would just, if, if we did nothing else according to Jesus' instructions here, if we just did this, that would go so far as to preserving people's reputations, to mitigating misunderstanding, to keeping gossip down, to limiting other people who are going to get, uh, you know, scandalized and upset over what may or may not have even happened. Um, it's so important that when you, when your brother has sinned against you, go, right? Don't just stew in it. Don't triangle people in. Certainly don't go online. Go to him. Talk to him or her, of course. Um, and if you know you've sinned against someone, you should you should you know beat them to the punch. Go to them too. But but here, yeah, the the onus is also on the person who is offended to not make it worse, but to go and try to resolve it. It says if he listens to you, you've gained your brother, and and, and that's what the goal is, right? You don't you don't get mad at people just because uh, you you uh, d- d- because you don't want to have a relationship with them. I mean, I, that's that's what I never understood is I if people that are that have no goodwill toward me and they want to say things that are that are evil or wrong or wicked um i'm not as inclined to go and try to correct them if i don't have any desire to be in a relationship with them i think the emphasis here is if your brother sins against you you know if we chase around everybody who's doing us wrong trying to get them to repent i think we would we would quickly tire out from our efforts but this is talking about in the context of a of a Christian, not just some outsider who's trying to incite you. This is about the body of Christ. You're supposed to be seeking reconciliation with one another, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that. I think the the most important word here is that gained your brother. Um, right. It's reminding you that you have have lost something and you're gaining it back, and that, that's an that's a good thing. That. This isn't the way it should be. You, we're, we want to gain back our brother through forgiveness. But then there's always the possibility that he is not going to listen. So if he doesn't listen, he says, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this can also be understood in a couple of different ways. The way that I understand it is that if the charge is that egregious, one because you know you always have the ability to just ignore it. If someone offends you, but you know they did it by accident or it was a one-off thing, you know you always if you you can let it go. That's that's part of it. Uh, but it's only if it's so egregious that you can't let it go that you're having to go to him one-on-one. I'm assuming here that the one or two others is just what that word means. There evidence that's one or two others who have some sort of uh, either they've witnessed it or they have some sort of ability to verify the sin. This isn't just grabbing two or three other people that agree with you and ganging up on him. I mean, I don't even think it's necessarily grabbing one or two others so they can mediate. I think it's if it's bad enough sin, then other people will know about it. And so therefore, you now bring those one or two others. Privacy is still in, implied here so that he can be convinced that it's true. Is that the way you take the one or two others or do you see it a different way? No, that's the way that I take it. You're not bringing people with you to jump on your bandwagon and um, inflict more guilt onto the person. There, I see them as 
uh, ones who may be aware of the sin or as silent witnesses to see that you are trying to do what Christ has asked you to do, to go and offer forgiveness. And this person is not repenting of the sin that they have committed against this person. Jesus says if he refuses to listen even to them, though, tell it to the ecclesia, that is, the church is the way it's translated here in the ESV, or the assembly, um, and then if he refuses to listen to the church, there's something to be done. But what does that look like now? Because Jesus uses this word um, ecclesia, ecclesia, which means assembly. I, I don't really know that the church... Um, is understood in the same way here. I mean, perhaps either Jesus is for, you know, looking forward to the church that will be um, established in his name, right, the body of believers, or perhaps Jesus is just talking about the gathering, um, the, the the corporate body of, of you know, believers, but this idea would have would doesn't necessarily mean like the established church order is what I'm trying to get at. How do you understand this telling it to the church? What's that look like? Well, when Jesus is telling us this, we didn't, we didn't have the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and our structure and church constitutions and everything sure. else that we have built off of this. And so we do have that to contend with. And I think for us to put it into best practice in the church and, uh, to have a you know a kind of common understanding of well why is it in our church constitution and why is it important to deal with it in this way we've got to think about it in our context so we can work together as brothers and sisters in Christ in this synod and i think that's where we have to have the the context has to be that it is well, the assembly in, in jesus is, is well, in Jesus's day, it would have been any outward expression, I suppose, of the of the visible church. So the people who were gathering to worship in a place where the offense took place, I suppose today that's easily recognized maybe at the congregational level, unless, of course, one sin is public enough to expand beyond a congregation to the district or synodical level. Uh, but when it says if he refuses to listen, tell them to the church— what does that look like maybe in your average Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod congregation? Does that mean that they're heading to the pastor? Does it mean they're going to the elders? Does it mean, you know, what does it mean? And what if it's one of those people? Well, I would say that in the two or three witnesses, you know, if we review through the steps, you know, you have gone and told alone, and then you take those two or three witnesses I would suggest as good practice that one of those two or three witnesses are your pastor that you're bringing with them as the a witness who can see that this has taken place because I do believe that your next step is going to be going to the elders with this. You know, that is uh, the group within our church that has that, you know, can deal with this still confidentially before uh, trying one last time uh, as the church to go to this person and have them acknowledge their sin and seek forgiveness to say, I'm sorry, and for us to forgive them before it does go, if it is so, so egregious, that it does go then to the voters' assembly. 
And as a pastor, I know how important it is to make sure you know exactly what you are bringing before a voters assembly uh, because of all the things that can happen uh, at a voters assembly. And you want to make sure that what you're bringing before them has been verified, not just by your pastor, but also by the elders. And we have done our due diligence here. So due diligence has been done. He's refusing to listen even to the church. And Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, as a Gentile, <laughs> I have to say, uh, you know, what does Jesus mean by that, right? We're going to have to look to, I guess, the narrative's Jewish context to understand what Jesus means when he says a Gentile and a tax collector. Uh, tell us a little bit about the fellowship between Jews and Gentiles. Well, basically, Jews considered uh, Gentiles and tax collectors who were Jews collecting taxes on behalf of Rome to be outside of the kingdom of God. That they were not worthy of being part of the kingdom. And so when so Jesus... When Jesus uses this uh, imagery of the, the Gentile and the tax collector, he's saying they're going they are now outside of the kingdom. And because they're outside of the kingdom now, we have to do all the more effort to reach them and show share Christ's love with them. I'm reminded just recently here in the Pericopes, the gospel lesson from Matthew that talks about Jesus calling Levi calling Matthew and how he took so much grief from the Pharisees about eating with uh, what they considered to be sinners, Gentiles, sinners, and tax collectors. And how much they were in need of forgiveness, and that is why Jesus was with them, building that relationship with them. So when we treat them, if we've gone through the whole process, and the word we've been missing from our conversation here is excommunication, if we have gone through this whole process, the go tell alone, the take two or three witnesses, go before the elders, and then it's go before the voters, and the voters vote to excommunicate this person, and now they're treated as this outside the kingdom. Now it's the job of the whole family of faith, the whole congregation, to go out and restore this brother. We got to share because they need forgiveness most, uh, especially... Um, what Jesus is going to say, it says in the latter part of this text about binding things. Well, and I think people need to understand that excommunication isn't like a um, an Amish shunning of people. It's not where, okay, now they're so far outside of salvation that they're not worth saving. No, it just is, in many ways, it's a it's a change in approach. You know, when a person is so egregious in their sin, so resistive to God's call to repentance, then now instead of reaching out to him like a fellow Christian who's sinning, you now reach out to him or her as someone who is an unbeliever. So so you still care just as much. It's just the approach changes. And of course, that public excommunication uh, is one that recognizes that the whole community is in agreement. That, that the sin is egregious. And so that's why it's such an important role. And then as you said, it, it rolls into, Jesus rolls into 
what we call the Office of the Keys, a restatement here, if there was any idea that these office, uh, these, these, this ability was given just to Peter, uh, we see that uh, here is not the case. Truly, to, truly, I say to you, to y'all, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then I say, if two of you agree on anything about what they'll ask, it'll be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Um, before we move into the next portion and the last part of our text for this morning, uh, verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I hear this often used uh, solely in the context of, well, uh, uh, there's only a couple people showed up to church today, but that's okay, because where two or three are gathered. But that's not really the context, is it? That's not what that means. No, it is not. Uh, it. I always have to, when I teach this, I say, uh, you know, we do do think about it in regards to low church attendance, but really what Christ is talking about is wherever two or three are gathered Christians in my name, especially in conflict, because we we're using it in the context of the rest of the chapter it has been talking about uh, reconciliation and so forth that in the moment of conflict between two or three brothers, we need to be reminded that Christ stands amongst us. He's there, which is why I, usually uh, make it my practice to pray this verse before every voters meeting to remind the individuals who are there working for Christ church, that he stands there with us as we're doing this, that we're not outside of his purview, that we have to be conscious about what we're saying and how we're acting with each other because Christ stands right there as we're dealing with the matters of the church. And that's a, and the voters' meaning is a larger application, but we apply that then into just our dealings with individuals who have sinned against us, that the, there's three people standing there, and one of them is our Savior. Well, we're quickly running out of time, but I want to read this last part, the parable of the unforgiving ser uh, servant. I'll do that quickly and then let you comment on how that all applies. This is the rest of chapter 18. Then Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle one, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. But the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have mercy and patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused, and he went and put him into prison until she should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, Jesus says, if you do not forgive your brother from your 
heart. And that ends the chapter. In fact, the, ne the next teaching is about divorce. But here we have this ending with a very powerful statement by Jesus. This is what God's going to do to you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. Uh, mm -hmm. Just a few comments on this and how it relates. Well, it's the reason why you can't take Matthew 18 verses 15 through 19 out of context and deal with them just on their own because you, you miss the parable of the unforgiving servant. Uh, it's the other half of the coin. You know, you have the uh, unrepentant, and then Jesus is dealing with the unforgiving. And he is saying that it's it's just as important to say, I'm sorry, as it is to say, I forgive you. He takes Forgive us our trespasses seriously. as we forgive those who trespass against us. Such an yes, important sir. part of our Christian faith is is not just we often think about calling sin to light right calling people to account mm -hmm. which makes sense we're to do that but we're also to forgive and be very very uh liberal with that forgiveness go out and 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 spread it freely uh just as Jesus also taught in other parables yeah not just 539 times <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, uh, I'm so glad that you were able to join us this morning. It's the Reverend David Benning. He's the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Nashville, Illinois. Thanks again for being on the show. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Folks, when we come back together on Monday, we dive right back in to 2 Samuel 20. The aftermath of Absalom's rebellion leaves a kingdom divided and teetering on the edge of chaos. We'll see what happens when one of those people, Sheba, tries to spark a rebellion. We'll learn about that and more. And so until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong work.